This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 68. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the podcast. I am so excited and so freaking ready to be bringing the show back for a new season and I have the best episode to start it all off with. Before we get stuck into the interview, I just wanted to give you a heads up that my class, the Insta Retreat, my tell-all six-week class for Instagram, is going to be enrolling again for the last time this year on the 2nd of October. That's a Tuesday. If you're on my mailing list, you'll get notification in advance. But if you want to check it out and read all the details, you can go to meandorla.co.uk forward slash courses. That's M-E-A-N-D-O-R-L-A co.uk forward slash courses. So there's a couple of things I need to tell you about the conversation Dolly and I had that you're about to hear. First up, this is a live recording. And just because my book events took place in different bookstores all over the country and everywhere has different AV setups, different sound equipment, the recordings came out a little bit different every time. So for some annoying reason, the sound on this recording with Dolly isn't as great as some of the others. There's that strange mobile phone feedback noise for the first 10 minutes or so that we've managed to edit out, but it still made our voices sound a little bit off as a result. So accept my apologies. Hopefully you know that that's not usually how things go around here. And I just want to urge you to please stick with it because the sound gets better once you're further into the podcast. And there is just so, so much valuable stuff in everything Dolly's got to share. It's actually really funny for me to be listening back to this episode because it was recorded way back in the early spring when my book release was only just beginning. So much of what Dolly said in our conversation in this episode was still ahead of me, needing time away, taking time out and feeling overwhelmed. And it's actually listening back kind of like she predicted my future for those coming summer months. For anyone who's yet to meet her work, Dolly Alderton is a journalist, a podcaster and a Sunday Times bestselling author. She joined me and a wonderful audience in Waterstones Covent Garden for this event in March, which was sponsored by Mirabeau Wine, which, by the way, is genuinely my favourite wine. Dolly and I were raving about it and drinking it throughout this recording. Here is our conversation from that night. Hi. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Can I just say, can you not tag me in a post if you're going to slack me off? (laughs) Because you would be amazed how many people feel perfectly comfortable doing that. Also, if you take a photo where I'm like, (laughs) maybe pick a different one. (laughs) I know, that's the worst thing about people taking pictures of you blabbing on at events. It's like those um, candid roaming photographers at weddings when you're like stuffing salmon in your mouth. Those are the only time I get pictures of me as a guest. Yeah. Quickly take a picture. Hang on, let's look like we're having. Hang on, I'll get the hashtag Mirabeau wine in. Right, it's everyone's opportunity. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, done. Thank you. Um, so, before we kick in, actually, I will say our wine tonight is provided very generously by Mirabeau Wine. That's at Mirabeau Wine on Instagram. And I also would like to say that I am promise you, under no obligation to say this, and I will have no financial gain by saying this, this is my favourite rosé. <laughs> Truly, I can glug it back by the gallon load. So I'm so happy that there's Mirabeau today. But feel free to not drink too much because we'll be taking home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, so if you do tag anything from tonight, if you'd like to share the love for Mirabeau, they have very generously provided drinks for tonight. Otherwise, we would all have been paying our own way. So, thanks, <laughs> um, So, the first one of these events I did was in Manchester with LJ Laura Jane Williams. Love her. So she filled the room with her presence, and she was like coordinating everybody. She had everybody in hysterics. It's not going to be quite like that with me as the host tonight. <laughs> yes, it will. A little bit more low key from me, but feel free to be in hysterics, like if that happens. She is just destined for the Loose Women panel. <laughs> I say this to her all the time. I'm like, yes. when is your time going to come? Oh my gosh. She is a loose woman. She is more loose than all of them put together. She's so charming <laughs> and so funny. And she's so like, she can so get a crowd on board with like, am I right, ladies? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She's just like, she's got the gift. She's got to be like a broad, like a proper primetime broadcaster. How do we, we've got to make it happen. Well, if anyone here has those skills, <laughs> maybe. You never know. Get in touch with Laura um, 
so yeah, I kind of it was a blessing to have her do the first one with me because it really kind of you know it was an amazing night. But then I also left her and I was like, oh shit, like the rest of them are not going to sound the same <laughs> as that one. So. Um, we can have a low key, we can have a chill. More low key. Sipping the Mirabeau. Exactly. Just taking the it slow. Hashtag Mirabeau. <laughs> um, so, where do we even start? Do you know, Dolly, I was thinking about this this morning. I've met you a few times now, but we've never had a conversation that wasn't mic'd and like with an audience. <laughs> that is so, like something from Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. That's so dystopian. Totally. Because I feel like I know you quite well, but um, that's mainly through social media, your book and recorded conversation. No, I feel exactly the same. Just because I can see a view in that lovely house in Halifax every every morning, I feel like I'm basically living with you. You see, the secret to the view is that then you can't see what's in the room and all the mess <laughs> and the piles of Peppa Pig toys. So keep it all on brand. Um, so I kind of... Well, let's start by introducing you. I suspect everybody knows who you are in the room. But how do you introduce yourself now? I'm interested to know if it's changed to how you introduce yourself on the previous episode of the podcast, actually. Oh, interesting. I think I say I'm a writer and journalist. I think, oh, a podcaster, that's what I say. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was interesting the last time we spoke, actually, because your book was not yet out. Can I also say as well, I have done so many podcasts in the last two years. It's just basically been like 24-hour blabbering to people <laughs> for a podcast. And the podcast chat that we had is my favourite I've ever done. Oh, wow. Truly. Genuinely? Do Gen- you say genuinely. that on every podcast you No, no, genuinely. <laughs> genuinely, it was the... Most of them are pretty tedious, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it, it was the, my favourite conversation I've ever had in a podcast. Well, okay. The pressure's just been out. I know. I've just realised I've added another layer of pressure. It's going to be fine. I've written down my questions. <laughs> so you've had kind of an intense year since we last spoke. Yeah. An amazing year. Has it felt amazing? Um, yes, it has. Yeah. So the book was just about to come out, I think, when we last spoke. It is now a Sunday Times bestseller, award-winning, um, and now out in paperback. How has that felt? Does it feel like success? Um... It's so weird. I think so many women I know have this like very Catholic mentality about success, which is like, I'm so worried that acknowledging that it has gone okay, that somehow that will bring upon me a biblical curse. Oh my God, I relate to this. Of self-satisfaction. Yes. And there will be like, I don't know, a plague of locusts or something in my flat in Camden. Like pride comes before a fall. I yeah, think I've yeah. Taken that literally. Yeah. Like, Do you have the same sort of superstition? Totally. Totally. What is that? I, I don't know. I think I interviewed Lily Allen recently, and she said this thing to me that I cannot stop thinking about. In fact, I'm going to try and write a column about it, where she said when she gave up pop music to have her children, one of the reasons that she did it is she felt like she always had this invisible person on her shoulder trying to put her back in her box. And me and my friend Lauren were talking about that, and I was like, what is that? Because I have that feeling all the time. And she said, it's this feeling, and we really bonded over it. We've been friends for like 15 years, and we've never talked about this. But we both have this chronic, low-level, constant feeling that we're about to be in trouble. That we're about <laughs> to get told off. And be found out. We're going to be found out, and we're going to be hauled into the headmistress's office. And then we're going to be shouted at for doing something wrong, fucking up, getting above our station, saying something wrong. And I've never quite sh- shaken that feeling. It's like, you know, the feeling of beer fear after you've been really drunk at a wedding <laughs> and just like talked at people for an hour <laughs> and done the worm on the dance floor. It's like that feeling of hangover dread, but I have all the time on a low level of like, oh, I've really messed up. So I think that's a part of this thing of like, don't get too comfortable, don't be boastful, don't acknowledge any sort of success, don't feel, don't take a moment to celebrate things because then you're going to get in big trouble. And have you got in big trouble? <laughs> um, no, it's really weird. It's like, it's like a psychological thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's I don't know feels, what it is. It feels related to imposter syndrome, mm. but not quite the same thing. And for me, I really think it's linked to like taking up space. Oh, definitely. Because that's what I think I'm going to be told off for. Yes. Like, you've been too loud. Everyone has had quite enough. (laughs) And actually, I feel it. Like, when the book came out, I had this really weird thing that I had to really check myself on. And I wonder if you have this particular habit with social media sometimes, where 
I'll just be, after the book came out and it was, you know, doing well and on the whole, the Amazon reviews were okay, other than my favourite one-star Amazon review, which was, the drinking and the shagging has got to stop. <laughs> was that your mum? No, it wasn't my mum. It wasn't my mum. She's totally fine about that side of things. Um, but then I felt, I felt okay about that because I went on to see, you see, you have all this ahead of you, Sarah. I went on to see what else they had reviewed, oh. and the only other thing they'd reviewed was um, mucus drying nasal spray. <laughs> Did they like the mucus drying nasal Loved it. <laughs> so I was just like, I'm obviously not for them. Um, my book does not offer any sort of mucus drying service. Um, yeah, so I don't know how I got onto that. Oh yeah, things were, things were, things were going well with it all. And then, you know, it was being reviewed okay, it was selling okay. And I had this really weird feeling where I was like, oh, I've shared way too much in this book. This is a real embarrassment. I'm going to really regret this. I've been, I've really overexposed myself. I need to basically go into hiding. I need to never post about myself anymore. I need to never post pictures of my face. I need to never self-promote again. And I, never, I need to never share any personal information about myself. And I, had to, and I felt it so strongly. Like I had massive anxiety about it. And I realized it's like, I don't feel those things at all. This is patriarchal shaming that has somehow seeped into my bones that I've internalized that makes me feel like, because I'm having a moment of like, feeling like I've found myself and I've found my stride, that I need to tell myself off and, and withdraw. That is huge. And I think actually probably everyone can relate to that at different stages in their life. Like you don't need a best-selling book to experience that on some level. Totally. It's like a vulnerability hangover. That's what I always call it. Oh, that's such a good way of it feels. Do you have that when you're you're sharing? Yeah. There's certain things. So I record a podcast with a friend of mine, Jen Parrington as well, separate one. And sometimes we'll record an episode that's really raw for both of us or for one of us. And the other one has to text and say, you know that episode, can you just listen back and say if I've said too much? And it never gets that reception when it actually goes out into the world. You're not rejected. But and that's not you judging yourself. No. That's you absorbing the outside world that and taking so it on true. and hating yourself. That is so true. It's a little bit like with parenting, one of the best bits of advice I was ever given was if your child's doing something that makes you want to kind of scream, the first instinct out of your mouth is what you've been conditioned to think. Mm. And you have to let that pass and wait for the second instinct, which is the real voice of yourself. And I feel like that's the thing here is like, there was definitely a day last week where I was like, actually, maybe I'll just take a year off. (laughs) I'll just take a year off the internet. And then the second part of my voice that kicked in a few days later that was like, oh, actually, that's not what we want at all. Where has that come from? No, I, I think I'm still in the middle of that a little bit now. I'm having this real sense of like, I need to properly withdraw. And I think that a part of that is that I just, I do feel a bit finally bored of talking about myself. <laughs> the day finally arrived. Um, but no. I also, <laughs> vulnerability hangover is the most perfect description of it. And it is one that I will, I promise to credit you accordingly, <laughs> but use a lot, I can feel. Um, because it is a weird... Yeah, and it's that too much. I've been too much. I've given too much. People are going to pity me. People are going to think I'm narcissistic. People are going to think I'm self-indulgent. It's a horrible feeling. And actually, even Pandora today, I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, this is my co-host and very dear friend. Of, um, we do a podcast together. And she, we were talking about uh, the, our Instagram grids. And there was this like really sweet illustration that was done of both of us that looked like this beautiful Klimt drawing. And I was like, oh, it's so nice, we should post it. And she said, yeah, I'm being really weird and fucked up with myself at the moment where I've just realized your daughter's in the audience. She's fine, okay. she, he- she hears this all okay. <laughs> <laughs> All of I just don't want to harm her princess perfect ears. Um, her tiara is on point. Um, yeah, and she was like, I've got this weird thing where I look at my grid and I like assess how much of my face has been on there and I, I, I'm really like whipping myself and, and I just feel like I need to wait an allocated amount of time before I indulge everyone and you know and it's like you know again the too much too much and I just I totally recognize like I've done that with myself where I've just been like right you have put up a selfie and a picture of a dress so now you need to put up a passage 
from a book by Sartre. Because you need to prove to everyone that you are outward-looking and curious. It's like so mad. But it's, it's so real. And actually, I don't know if I'm sure you've experienced this. There's always a couple of people who are willing to speak up for that voice of patriarchal bullshit yeah. um, and tell you you are taking up too much space in one way or another. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's the feeling that Liliana was talking about when, when that voice does is materialised of, like, get back in your box. It's horrible. Well, like in her case, she's got people like the Daily Mail committed to being that yeah. voice yeah. for everybody. Yeah, exactly. If her con- I, I truly... I think I used to be quite intolerant of of celebrities talking about how difficult it is to be famous and the more that I actually talk to celebrities and the more I understand or have a taste of social media um presence like like large-ish presence the more that I think I I have like a one percent of an idea of and and extend my empathy to how terrorizing it must be she that feeling of about to be in trouble can you imagine waking up every morning in the Mail Online basically telling you you're in trouble? It must just be unbearable. So it's funny you went there, actually, because the next question is literally on my list here. Um, there's a piece by Catelyn Moran that I don't know if you've ever read. I think it was in one of her books where she talked about the exact percentage of famous. She'd worked out that she was. And I think she was something like 14%, which meant she could still catch a bus and not yeah. be recognised, yeah. but maybe go into a coffee shop. And I wonder, like... What percentage do you think you are now? What percentage <laughs> you were before the book came out and where you feel like you are now? percent. Like <laughs> I don't um, think you are. Uh, do you know what? There is a very specific type of woman, and I'm sure there are a few of them here tonight, and I'm very happy to see them. They're my favourite type, and they're the majority of the women who've read my books. They're normally women who work in media and who like a bottle of rose on a Thursday night. <laughs> and if they see me out in Soho and they're a couple of bottles down, and they're out with the gals, they may want to come over and tell me all about the ins and outs of their last relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And truly, I don't... It's so fun, I don't mind, because it's so specific. It's so localised. It's basically drunk PR girls in Soho. (laughs) And uh, it's kind of like... It's it's not even being recognised or anything, because... It's so London-specific, and my God, do I feel this, because I've been on tour, when it's like, without seeing Tubos for, I did this very big venue in London that we had no problem selling out, and then it's like, the Norwich Playhouse. (laughs) Ten tickets sold. (laughs) So, (laughs) I really did realise it very... Any inflation of ego that this book may have brought was, was burst immediately when doing a live national tour and no one knew who the fuck I was. Um, so it's so specific to London because basically I think it's like an extended group of like colleagues. Do you know what I mean? It's like people who work with people I know or whatever. I don't think that's how you get a best-selling book, Charlie. It's just friends of friends. Friends of friends. Um, but no, I mean, it, do you know what? It's, it's, it, I'm surprised it has happened as much as it has. That has been a surprise because I don't do anything on camera. I'm so awful on camera. It's like my darling publicist Jane is here and it makes her life a living hell (laughs) because I have like an absolute flat out no, ever, 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 never will be on camera, never talk on camera. So I, I don't, I think it might be a combination of Instagram presence and the fact that that I've kind of and maybe the high look, maybe that's yeah, why you're on the cover art as well. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. then I basically shoved my face as we've discussed in everyone's feed <laughs> for a period of five years. So no point not not on percent right yeah. now. What's your upper boundary? Like if someone said to you tomorrow, okay, we're gonna take you global with this it's going to go huge what percentage of famous do you think you would allow yourself to get to truly that terrifies me really yeah i think um what i re i want my store like i want my work to be famous that's i i know that sounds like so faux modest and pretentious but i the only part of this year that i have found difficult is i have felt a little bit overexposed which is i must say my all my own making in the pursuit of kind of trying to get my message out and trying to sell books. But it has, I, I've, I just, I'm done with me. I, I don't think I can hear me. This is like, like, 
I don't think I can hear myself talk about my book in my 20s for much longer. And I don't think that I can see myself promote myself much more. And it's, and it's not that that isn't actually about the shame thing. It's more that I don't want to become a professional personality. What, what I really want to do is, is become like a professional creator. And for my whole life, particularly my whole working life, but you know, I've been like trying to create things since I was a teenager. The creation was the thing that took precedence. And for, you know, it's taken a bit of a back seat for the last year. As you know, because you've got to go promote yourself in your work. But I have found that really stressful. I'm, I'm desperate just to start writing again. So the idea of, of having to, of, of, you know, if someone said you have to do like a global tour of the show that I've just done, I really cannot think of <laughs> enough of an incentive to do that. It sort of reminds me of when I um, interviewed Hadley Freeman for this podcast. Oh, I love her. Yeah, I really do. Although she was... She's not here, is she? she I listened to that episode. She was quite hard to connect with. She sort of had very strong boundaries that I felt like I wasn't able to weave my way through. Yeah, see, um, good New Yorker. Well, I guess so. <laughs> and also, like, I think she's, I think I'm right saying she's a little bit older than we are. Yeah. And she was very evident, like, don't tell your own stories, tell other people's stories, they're more interesting. Do you know, it's so funny you should say that, because... I remember years ago seeing Hadley Freeman had read had written this piece. My boat's going down very well. Um, she'd <laughs> written this piece. I think it was for the Guardian, saying, "I despair at the millennial generation because they're so inward-looking, and all they do is write stories about themselves. Go write about something interesting." And I remember finding that just like so minimising and patronising and dismissive. And then to my utter horror, well not horror, joy and surprise and <laughs> wonder, I just couldn't believe it. This weekend she wrote a piece about things that she would say to teenage girls and she said, live without shame and she said, I so admire writers like Helen Fielding and Dolly Alderton um, and Catelyn Moran for writing about their experiences so candidly. And I was just so surprised because the, the message, the party line that I'd that I'd heard from her is basically she's bored of women talking about themselves. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely what she sort of was putting across in the podcast, and I kept trying to worm around it because I felt like there was something behind it. She wasn't giving, but I'm trying to remember the name of her book. It's like, I can see the cover, it's black with kind of rainbow writing, if anyone knows the one I mean. And I love that book, but it really, all, all the way through, it felt like she was telling me her stories without telling me her story about mm. it. So she was telling me what she'd learned without feeling like she could share. And I do think that's kind of one of the gifts that the internet has given our whole generation. In fact, I, I wrote a book on, on this topic. <laughs> um, is the, the, that power of being able to be vulnerable in kind of a semi-safe space and to have your stories heard and then to get past them. Like, hopefully that's the aim, is that once we've shared everything and everyone's kind of learned from one another, then there's something beyond it as well. But also I think the mistake that people make is that when you allow yourself to be vulnerable by telling a story or a part of a story, you are not telling someone your entire autobiography. <laughs> it's still very much a curated art form. In fact, I recently read a piece by Danny Shapiro, who's like a, she's written a number of memoirs, and it was a few years old on the New York Times, and she, uh, for, on, and she wrote it for the New York Times, and she said that something that she really resents is that people think that writing a memoir is the same as having a glass of wine with a friend and letting rip to them. And she was like, it's just so patronising to assume that it's not an incredibly considered art form, uh, you know, a, a thoughtful creation. It's different. It's totally a different thing. So I do really push back on that idea that you're making yourself so vulnerable. I think it's very rare that any writer does that. There is, writers are the most controlling people I've ever <laughs> met. You know, you're, you're truly trying to control how people see you and the story that you're telling. You literally get to kind of tell your story in your own exactly. words, which is the ultimate yeah. power. Um, I guess it kind of transcends on, then onto social media as well, in that way that people think they can see your Instagram feed and therefore know 100% of your life, when really it's like 0.1%, yeah. the 1% that you've chosen. Um, you were saying just before we started though that you've kind of taken a bit of a step back from social media at the moment. Yeah, but that's, I'm just addicted. <laughs> I've just got to get some work done. <laughs> 
It is work, isn't it? Scrolling Twitter is work. I think the sort of Instagramming you do is like very much a part of your work. The sort of Instagramming, I've talked about this before, but I still can't believe that during one of the most stressful work weeks of my life last week, I spent 15 minutes on Frankie Cocoa's Instagram page. Was it enlightening? It was. He's married and he has a baby. <laughs> um, but it's just the, the reason why I'm, I, I'm hoping to take about six weeks off Twitter and Instagram just to try and write a second book proposal. Because at the moment, I am so compulsive. Like, truly, I, I think people don't say this enough. Most people are like, I've got a really good routine. I've got really good boundaries. And, you know, I prefer the real world to the virtual one. I don't. <laughs> I prefer the virtual one. I regularly leave dinner with my closest friends to sit on the loo and scroll through Twitter and Instagram. Like, I am a fully-fledged addict, and I don't mind being honest about that. And it is getting in the way of my concentration and creativity. So I've got to just go cold turkey for a bit. It's, it's really just as simple as that. It's not even some big psychological thing. It's just, it's a toy I cannot put down. I feel the same, but I'm, I'm not ready to part with it. But you seem like you have got really healthy boundaries with it. No. <laughs> um, How often are you scrolling, honestly? Like, 100% of the day. <laughs> Do you have that tracker? No, oh. I won't even activate that. Yeah. But then my defence is, it's my business. It's also my leisure time. Like, I live in a little house in Yorkshire... My health often means like I can't even go to the pub. So I'm catching up with my friends, I'm reading the news, and I don't want my screen time to make me feel bad because actually yeah. it brings me lots of joy and it brings a lot of good stuff into my life as well. But am I, I just be in denial? No, no, I think every person is different. Pandora and I were talking about this on the high-low last week, and her husband is someone who spends a lot of time on social media. And it just brings him joy. It's like reading a magazine or a book. And I think everyone just needs to know their own mental health and their own boundaries and their own kind of... Like, I know for me, I have to have quite a routine of discipline to feel comfortable with having social media in my life. But that's just me. I don't think that's everyone. I think it's probably most people, and I know a lot of people say it does negatively affect either their flow or... It's the flow. Yeah. The flow. The flow state. Is damned at the moment. Yeah. I mean, my flow's screwed anyway, so I think I'm just embracing it. <laughs> well, you've it. got a kid, which is basically the ultimate dam for a flow, I hear. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. If anyone's thinking of doing a series of live book events with a six-year-old, I'm going to say don't. Don't do that. Um, I've tried it. It's tricky. A little bit tricky. Um, I'm not just checking my Twitter right now. <laughs> She's so addicted. <laughs> Anything more interesting? Um... No, I was going to say, so I think most people here probably know you for your, for your book and for Instagram. How many people follow Dolly regularly on Twitter? Twitter's over. Ooh. Twitter's done. But I think you really shine on Twitter. You're I'd one say. of my favourite tweeters. <laughs> so, tweeters? Twitterers? So I've just screenshotted a few examples of um, Dolly on Twitter Quite um, nervous. About so <laughs> I didn't scroll too far back to the real gems. I was like, I know the stuff here that I want, but do you um, know the worst and most narcissistic thing that I do? And I'll say this because it's a safe space, and I had a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> the worst thing that I do, where I'm like, oh, social media has poisoned you and made you a narcissistic monster, is sometimes I scroll back to. 2018, 2017 maybe, and just read my tweets. <laughs> like I'm reading a re-gripping novel. And I will, there may be a little chuckle to myself. Sometimes I will feel very moved. And I'll just scroll right through to present day. Well, because it's like past you wrote you a little, yeah. a little book that you've forgotten about. I mean, the world, humanity is doomed. The fact that that's an acceptable <laughs> thing to do for two hours. I think it's nice though. I read something the other day that was like, have you ever thought about how much future you must hate current you? <laughs> and I was like, oh. oh. But future you loves past you, if you can follow. I think saying. future me is already a bit like, just get off Twitter. Get <laughs> off Frankie Cocosa's Instagram page. Write your second book. So here's Dolly on Twitter. Um, my friend and I got so drunk last night, we bought flights to Orkney. Good one. Um, That's welcome to your 30s. <laughs> it's now time for one of my biannual niche bra tweets. I've been preparing it for a number of months now, and I hope you enjoy it. Does anyone have a low-front bra recommendation that is suitable for C-plus knockers? <laughs> I did find a very brilliant bra, actually. Did you? Did it work? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the brand. 
Can you send it me for the show notes? Yes, because we're going to get that. We're going to put that in the show <laughs> yeah, notes. Yeah, it's going there. Uh, probably right at the top. <laughs> Is getting a guinea pig just a mad idea? <laughs> Apparently, yes, but I still think it's a good idea. I really want a cockatiel, so... It's a cockatiel. It's like a small parrot. You are a bird keeper, though. Kind of, I'm a weird bird woman. Like, the one in Mary Poppins. (laughs) With the same hair and everything. I really, really want a guinea pig. And actually, after I did that tweet, I remembered another tweet I'd done a couple of years ago where I said to this very po-faced mother, where we were talking about kids, and she had absolutely no interest in talking to me or finding out anything about my life, so we were just talking about her children. And I said, um, (laughs) you know, I'm actually always wanted children because I see children as a gateway to nativity plays (laughs) and guinea pig ownership. She looked at me and said, yes, well, I think it actually requires a little bit more than that. (laughs) She was lying. (laughs) Literally, yeah. And tiara purchasing. (laughs) And a bit of Peppa Pig watching. Yeah, which I was doing anyway. (laughs) Um... I've just got a few Go more. on, keep embarrassing me. I'm loving it. Um, I could never be romantically involved with someone who wanted to walk across the O2 Arena's roof. <laughs> I stand by that. I'm not ashamed. I mean, 2,922 <laughs> likes, you're not alone. I must say, though, that I actually do think that's quite a philosophical tweet because I'm back on dating apps now and there is definitely a type of man that I've seen online that has only manifested now in my 30s, who is obsessed with activities. (laughs) And personally, without being too maudlin, I think it's because these men are approaching 40 and they can feel death closing in. (laughs) So they want to distract themselves as much as possible and they just want to do, like, Zumba or whatever on a first date. And these are the ones who all their profile pictures are them, like, skiing. Trekking mountains. Yeah. Yeah. I never meet these men in real life. (laughs) When the men I meet in real life just play like FIFA, and yet everyone <laughs> on Hinge is like trekking Everest. Um, but yeah, so that was the tweet was more about like men who were just so obsessed with like activities because I just I just can't do that. I think it's legitimate to be honest. And Would you date an activity guy? Well, no, <laughs> no, I'm married, but I did not marry an activity guy. In fact, I actively discourage activities of all kinds. You and I should get married. <laughs> Just sitting on the sofa. Um, final one then is my tweets are shit. <laughs> yeah, I think they are. I, I did, love them. I made. I did this exercise last week, so I am trying to just wean myself off before I have my break. And I was like, every time I think of a funny tweet, I'm going to write them on my iPhone notes and not tweet them. See, this was going to be my question. And then at the end of the week, reflect on whether I should have tweeted them or not. <laughs> and. One of them was like, I want a mood ring. <laughs> All is wearing one tonight. Is she? Oh, I had it on earlier. Heroin. It's amazing. But like, don't need to share that with the world. Another one was like, toast is only good as a vehicle for smashed avocado. It's just like, <laughs> why? Write your second book. What are you doing? This is the content I'm here for. This is... Please tell me your second book is going to contain all of these and more. It's basically just a selection of my tweets. Yeah. Very excited to reveal. So what is the second book? Are you allowed to talk about it? Um, it I don't know what it is yet. It's going to be fiction. Oh, yeah. okay. And have you had fiction published before? No. no, no. So how's that feeling? We, I'm really, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult kind of creating a world that isn't dictated by any parameter of reality. Because when you're writing a memoir, you're just like, yeah, the plot's a bit patchy, but it was my life. Can't change the plot of my life. Whereas you just don't have that excuse. (laughs) Fiction, you have to, it's, it's like a technical art form that I really need to learn. Yeah, I've only ever written really short bits of fiction, which Have I can cope you? with. I can cope with like short, short stories. Yeah, <gasps> I want to read them. Mm, you Did not. you publish them? Um, only on my own platforms, but like oh. they're out there. But um, I was approached to write something longer, longer fiction. So tried, sat down, and was like, I can do this. You know, this is an endorsement, but it's so hard. To, there's no structure. Whereas like non-fiction, so like this book. You list all the things you want to say and then you weave them into a pattern and you can make a, a story and a book out of it. Yeah, and you have the narrative of your own experience. Yeah. yeah. Whereas... It's such a luxury. <laughs> Truly, I hadn't realised. And it's the same with, like, 
adaptation, I think, is is easier than just coming up with a story from nothing. So, like, Clueless is to Emma. That, that was the first. Yes. <laughs> totally. I love that we share those cultural touchstones. Uh, exactly, yeah. I think anything that, that already has the beats in place for you is is easier. It just can feel so overwhelming, the thought of creating a world from scratch. So this is what the six weeks are going to be absorbed with? Uh, yes, I'm going on Frankie Kokosa's Instagram. <laughs> no, you're on, you're on a... I know, but the problem is, is that I still go on... Have you ever done it, a big Instagram break? Not an intentional one. I've done it before. I did it when I was writing my book. And the problem is, I still had, like, ten Instagram pages that I knew the handles off by heart, mainly my friends, <laughs> who I would go on five times a day. So I might as well still have just been on Instagram. Uh, yeah, that's, it's a bit like when you um, unfollow someone, but then type their name in every day and go and look yeah, anyway. Yeah, like every ex-boyfriend of mine. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> might as well just follow them really because it's kind of the same thing. But I guess the other side of it is making you less accessible to people as well. Like, do you find that if you're online, people feel they have a right to your time or a right to your attention, or have you got better boundaries than that? Um, no, I mean, I did have to get to a point where I stopped checking my request inbox. Do on, still, on Instagram. Yeah, though, do yeah. you still check that? I have a look in it now and again, but I, I certainly never get through most of them. I just found it so overwhelming. There was like a period of my life when the, when the hardback was published where I was getting so many messages from girls who were like, it's my friend's birthday, she'd love a signed copy, yeah. or I can't make this event, I would love a signed copy. Yeah. And I would like every week be in the post office like three hours spending all my money like I would they would be like oh I'll send you the money and I'd be like no no don't worry like you know sending these books out to women I don't know and like paying for and it was like I I just can't this is I've got to have some boundaries this is and I think it's not like they were demanding that of me I just felt really bad so I felt like it was incumbent on me to do that for them but I think that almost like it's so inappropriate for everyone involved (laughs) that I just I got to a point where I was like I can't because the minute that I see that someone's asking something of me, because it, in my head it takes so little effort, but actually in practice it really does take up a lot of time. Absolutely, well, it adds up to a hell of a lot of time. Yeah, and it's also I do think there's something in there about boundaries and you kind of owning the level that you're at, which might mean that you're not accessible to people in that way. But that might feel terrifying. Yeah, it just feels it just feels I don't know ungrateful or something. Yeah. But then maybe um, that harks back to what we were talking yeah. about earlier as well. Like, yeah. You don't. Do you have to be grateful? I don't know. It's weird. I was talking to the journalist Daisy Buchanan about this, and I said to her, it's really difficult to know like, what, is, what is you having good boundaries and what is you being a selfish dick. Yes. It's really difficult. The same. Yeah. 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 And I think quite often you'll get the same response from people whether it's you being very respectful and having good boundaries or being a selfish dick. Yeah. So yeah. The, the feedback's not very helpful either. I think the only way you learn that is experience and getting older and you'll just become more comfortable regardless of what the response is. You'll, you'll know when you're just being, when you're just looking after yourself and, and when you're being selfish. I think so. And I think a big part of it for me is definitely been screwing up. Like, you know when a boundary has been crossed. Yeah. And then you can at least take that to the next the next time it comes up and be like, oh, this is like that time I yeah, all these things. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so kind of pivoting a little bit then, you talked about spending all the money at the post office sending these yeah. books. I think people probably have an idea of what it looks like to be a best-selling, award-winning author um, and what that kind of represents financially. I wonder how much financially your situation has changed. I'm not asking you, obviously, to necessarily name numbers, but... Have you, have you been able to kind of splurge on something to celebrate? How has the last year gone for you in that term? Yeah, my, uh, it's hard because you want to be transparent, but you don't want to seem self-satisfied. I must caveat this with, I am very aware, as I'm sure you are, that I'm freelance and our work is very precarious. So I'm, I, I don't think that... I am now on this upward, you know, trajectory. Next step, millionaire. No, no, I'm very aware that this could just be a moment in my life. But for the first time this last year, I haven't had to worry about money. I haven't had to get to the end of the month and go through every single bag and pocket and coat to find a way to get a sandwich from prayer, uh, a real necessity, (laughs) and top up my Oyster card. 
Um, and it's so weird because what I've realised about the money thing, and this is such an obvious point to make, but when you don't have money, it, it's literally all you think about. Yeah. All like, oh, would you dream about it when I was when I was running out of money? It was so difficult when I was, first became a freelance journalist. It was just this kind of constant, and most of that actually wasn't even to do with my salary. It was to do with the ch- endless chasing of payments and vendor forms and three hours on the phone with an accounts department that was the thing that was just unbearable um but it's weird that now it's really not like you know I'm loaded but for the last year I just I don't really think about it that much it's so nice actually having gone through the same yeah you just I'm like oh that was a a period that was a thing I used to think about every second of the day and now I think about it sometimes a word I read in an article and describing it said it makes life frictionless, which yeah. I think really perfectly describes it, is that friction of, all right, okay, I need to go to Tesco, but I need to check my bank. Oh, actually, I've only got this much. I'm going to have to add up what's in my basket because it's payday. I used to play petrol roulette, which was literally, how long can I drive my car before yeah. it stops running? Yeah. Can I beat the clock and make it to payday? And so having that brain space freed up is such a luxury. Yeah, and, and I actually will never lose sight of what a privilege that is. Truly, like, privilege for me, in terms of splurging, I, I really, I'm still incredibly anxious about money. You know, I'm not a homeowner. That's something I would really like in my future. That's incredibly difficult in London. So I'm, I'm really not splurging. I got, like, one... I got a designer handbag that I bought for myself. Good. Uh, which I have here tonight, and you can all meet later um, uh, when I sold my book. But that was more about like I wanted something to remember this like big yeah work project. celebrate yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, I really my in fact something really interesting that I worked out is when I looked at what I'd saved from the last year and the difference between my salary from the year before. My output was exactly the same. Isn't that? Do you, does, is that? Does that make sense? Just clarify that. So my spending was exactly ah, the same, but even though my earnings were higher when I took away what I put in savings. That, that's interesting. That's really telling. Yeah, I know. Um, but no, privilege for me and luxury for me is basically just like always being able to get on the tube. Do you know what I mean? Always having milk in the fridge, always. Yeah. Like, just uh, the privilege for me is like going to a friend's birthday dinner and not dreading and ordering, like, not having to order, like, oh my God, a plate yeah. of dough balls and hoping that, like, they're not, everyone's not going to go, let's just split it. <laughs> because you don't want to be the dick that's like, oh, well, no, I didn't but drink I didn't drink wine. anything and yeah. I just had three dough balls. <laughs> to be able to just be like, yeah, that's fine. I've got 30 quid in my account to just split the bill. In fact, I've got a very funny story about this. My friend, who shall remain nameless, was really worried about how much money she had in her account. I think she had like 15 quid in her account, but payday was the next day. And her friend invited her out for dinner to go to like Oaxaca. And she said, she was like, oh, it's fine. I'll just have like the free chips and some, I'll order like, one margarita and a guacamole and it'll be totally fine and my friend will understand and then on the way to Oaxaca the friend was like who's an actor he was like oh we've got like a a load of people that are going to come join us including Robert Pattinson (laughs) 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 and they ordered this like enormous feast of like multi courses loads of loads of margaritas and she was just shitting herself throughout the whole you know when you just can't enjoy the dinner because you're so nervous about what's going to happen when the card reader comes around and the card reader came around and I think she was so embarrassed about the fact that it would be declined that I think she pretended that she'd like lost her card it's quite and then our pats had to just like casually pay for her dinner <laughs> She was so mortified by the whole situation. But what is no, that's quite a specific example. That's never, that's never happened to me. But that feeling of just like panic of like I can't celebrate my friend or I can't go to a birthday dinner or whatever because I'm so like getting rid of that anxiety. It's such a small thing, but it just makes life so much easier to move through. Definitely, and that's the thing that motivates me to kind of keep working. Is I. I don't want to have to go back to that if I can help it. Yeah. 
And in an ideal world, nobody would have to be going through that ever. It feels yeah. like it should almost be just like a basic standard of living where you're not terrified about money every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think we are probably due to go to the audience for some questions. So you've got a couple of minutes warning if you want to have a think of a question for Dolly or for myself. And there's a little incentive. Um, I have some posters. So anyone who asks a question can grab a poster as well. That is a very good idea. Because the last two like people were like, oh, questions? <laughs> oh. um, but before that, I want to know the best, the most obnoxious email, tweet, troll, review you've ever had. What's the one that comes to mind? Ooh. Something that I find really interesting, and just to warn you, you are going to have this with your Uh-oh. book, is um, the amount of people who seem to not really be able to grasp the genre of memoir who will leave me a one-star review and say, she was just very self-obsessed. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I've literally been asked to write a book about my life and experiences. I don't really know how you can do that without being accused of being self-obsessed. That's, have you had quite a few of those then? Loads. Really? Loads. I've also had a couple of very disappointed people who want their money back because they thought it was Dolly Parton's memoir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other thing I love as well, which... Again, I'm sorry to be the voice of doom, but it's coming. Oh, God. It's coming. It's the people who give you one star, and they say, this book took seven (laughs) days to arrive, and I ordered it on next day delivery. I've seen these on other people's, yeah, like, Too much packaging, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Too much packaging. I hope that all my one-star reviews end up being too much packaging. I would feel like it's a good job. It's so annoying, though. It's so annoying. (laughs) Um, And reviews matter. Like, this is the thing I'm kind of hammering home in a lot of my podcasts at the moment. But if you've enjoyed Dolly's book, or if you haven't and you're about to buy it and enjoy it after tonight, do leave a review. Because the more reviews, they make an impact on, like, algorithms and visibility and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, review all of your favourite writers. Ever since I realised that, I've been on a bit of a spree. Yeah, I've got to do page. that more, yeah. Maybe in your six weeks off social media. I can just literally sit on Amazon <laughs> just doing reviews of all my favourite Make books. that into your new social media. <laughs> I will find a new distraction. I always do. So maybe that will be it. I hope so. <laughs> um, does anyone have a question? I think it's really important that you've both mentioned about boundaries, about self-control, about checking other messages and things like that. And I think that as women, sorry for men in the audience, it's quite a difficult thing for us to do. (coughs) Do you set boundaries and adhere to them? Or do you set boundaries and adhere to them but then still also get really sad about the things, the negative things that people are saying? So I suppose that the negativity for whoever does anything online at all is 4% and 96% is actually really positive and that's what you should be focusing on and you should be focusing on the really positive things. It's very hard to focus on the 4% of the negative, or it's really easy to focus on the 4%. So do you have actual examples of when you've really tried to focus on the positive and accept your boundaries and move on and try and not be so hard on yourself? Basically what I'm saying is how do you get rid of the negativity in your brain when you've got a lot of people being negative towards you because you're famous to a certain degree and you do have it? And that's the both Sarah and, and Dolly, I think. Do I call ne- do I pronounce your name Sarah? Um, Sarah or Sarah. My mum says Sarah, but I answer to both. Cause I suddenly Sarah with like, a H, so you're Sarah to me. I suddenly no was like, has the last three years of our friendship been a lie? <laughs> no. And you've been Sorry, too Sarah. polite to correct me. <laughs> Technically, Sarah. I also answer to Orla because I get that a lot. Um, I think that's a really, really good question. I have an example of this from yesterday. Basically, I think the risk of boundaries is... So I'm a massive, massive people pleaser. It's, you know, I think probably the best and the worst thing about me that there is a part of me that just wants to make sure that other people feel comfortable. And then the flip side of that is there's a part of me that wants to put my happiness and <clears throat> and my kind of sense of integrity below everything else just because I want everyone to like me. And actually, that's not really about being compassionate. That's about complete narcissism. <laughs> um, and I think the problem with trying to create boundaries when you're a people pleaser is you have to accept that a boundary <coughs> means that you might disappoint someone. And you just have to accept that if you want to be a big fucking grown-up girl. Like, that's part of reality. Not everyone's going to be in love with you. And I had this yesterday when 
uh, a girl emailed me this, this quite long email saying that she wanted some advice on her career. Um, and the second half of the email was talking about her that she suffered from anxiety and she was worried about how her anxiety would um, inhibit her career goals. So I replied saying, thank you so much for getting in touch. It sounds like you're doing all the right things. I'm wishing you all the love and luck in the world. I really hope you don't mind. But as you can imagine, I do get quite a lot of these emails. So I have written this email, which took me like hours and hours and hours to construct over the course of, and I update it. I've been sending it out for years of like my experience and all the advice that I would give someone. Sounds pretty generous. And I sent it to her and she replied very sweetly. um, But she replied saying, thank you so much, but actually what I'm more interested in knowing is your journey with anxiety and how it specifically has hindered or enhanced your pursuing of your career goals and what advice you would give me. And it was really difficult because the people pleaser in me wanted to reply to her and say, okay, I'm going to take an hour out of my day to sit and tell you the whole story of my mental health battles and the wisdom that I can impart to you and what, you know, a plan that I think might work for you. But I can't do that. I can't do that. So it was really difficult. I just had to not reply. You're also not qualified to do I'm that. not it's qualified. Not That's another thing as well. I'm not, you know, I am by no means an expert or have any modicum of wisdom at all, really. All I have is my own experience. And, yeah, but, but that, like, <clears> I've got to be totally honest, like, I felt really shit about that for the last 24 hours and I forwarded it to a friend and I was like, this is when I found boundaries really hard because I just want to reach out and help this person. But, you know, first of all, that's too much of a drain on my my schedule. I don't want to let all these people down. I don't want to let my publicist down and my co-host of my podcast down and my editor down and my producer down who are all waiting from overdue work from me. I can't sit and write an email to a stranger for an hour but it felt rubbish and, and, and actually just being able to like face that negative feeling and know that it's done something good in the long term, that, that's, what, that's really what the work of boundaries is, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of if this is something you struggle with, which probably is most of us, yeah. I actually just put out a podcast this week with a Tega from Women Who love her. Me too, like slight fangirl moment really talking to her and she has this nailed like she has such a clear idea of who whose opinion is important to her and whose isn't and it's something I feel like I've been really working on because that's kind of what it comes down to isn't it I feel like the the reason that that part of the story upset you is because you recognize that she was someone who you probably like you did want to like you would have some sort of relationship with at time yeah allowed and And I saw it like I used to send emails like that when I was 21 so I, I just, you don't want to disappoint that person who you remember being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so sometimes it just sucks. But the difference, I guess, is knowing when to say, actually, this is somebody who I'm going to have to disappoint and that's boundaries versus this is someone who no matter what I do, I'm going to disappoint them. Mm. Like nothing I do is going to be enough for them. And learning to recognize that difference. I feel like it's only been in the last year or two I've got better at that. But learning to be like, oh, okay, so you're just in that space of really negative thoughts, really negative energy. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And when you're ready, you can come back into this space with me. And that sounds a bit woo-woo, but like... No, no, I I totally agree with what you're saying. You've kind of just got to stay and do what you do and do the best you can do. And like, you know, I I have a little girl, I have a health condition, I've got family. Like, I can't be in that place of misery and anxiety over every person that upsets me. It costs me such a lot. So it is, it's an emotional cost. Yeah, so the boundaries come when you're like, I can't go through that again. I can't yeah. go through that every time that email lands in my inbox. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Do we have another question? Marie, are you okay? It's just this lady here. Yeah. Uh, here with the black jumper. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Hi. Okay. Uh, a question for Dolly about the writing. I also just want to say I do have guinea pigs and they're really sweet, but they are a bit completely rubbish. Why? <laughs> Why are they rubbish? They, 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 like, they 
I don't mind that. Because when we first got them, we thought, oh, you're so sweet, you just sit there and let stroke you. Yeah. And I realised they were actually petrified with fear. They don't like being handled, so they're actually oh. really good for handling. Because yeah. you just sit there being a bit terrified and rubbish. But they would grow to love you. So yeah. Um, the pets I can deal with actually, <laughs> but I don't think I can have a pet that's like that's why I find rabbits yeah. difficult that that yeah. are constantly that terrified of me. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that afterwards yeah. at length. <laughs> because I know you write, you know, your journalism pieces, your short pieces, and you've written a book. So I, I'd love to know a little bit more about when you're writing. What does that look like? What's your process? Do you have to take a run up at it, or mm. do you compose something in your head and bust and have to like get home and it just spills out? Mm. Or and is that different for writing a book to writing your short pieces? They're totally different. Such a good question. They're they're totally different disciplines. I think so. When I'm writing. When I'm writing the column, I'm basically doing an extension of conversations that I'm having with people, which is why now, more and more, I'm realising that Sex in the City was so genius and so accurate, because basically that's what they show the art of column writing to be, which is she would recognise something amongst her girlfriends or something in the zeitgeist, and then she would talk at length with all of them get little snippets, great anecdotes, moments of wisdom, observation, sort of mull them over for a week and then load it into a 700-word piece, which is exactly how it works. Kat Moran said actually once, I can't remember where I heard her say this, she said that she decides in advance what her column is going to be, normally for about a week, I think she said, was like the lag time. And then it's almost like she has a post-it on the back of her head that's blank, and before she does any writing of the actual column, she is making it... Once she knows the prism of the topic that she's talking about, she'll go through her week of, like, hanging out with her kids, seeing her friends, chatting with her husband, you know, going about her day-to-day -day life, basically unconsciously <laughs> filling up that post-it with notes. So by the time that she goes to write it, she's kind of written most of it anyway I find that to be so true and that's why every month I go into the Sunday Times and we pre-plan my four columns so I never have that moment of sitting down on a Monday morning and being like what the hell am I going to be am I going to write because I do think that when you're writing a column you're like bringing in all the chatter from your world and, and hopefully some of the outside world like that's the art of column writing I think um, whereas for me, I think book writing is different for everyone. I'd be so intrigued to hear your answer on this. For me, I had to have like a love affair with the thing. I had to like come off social media. I had to have this secret, intimate, hot affair with my book. It's the only way that I could get it done. I basically didn't leave the house. It's literally like that, like when you first meet someone. <laughs> And you're just indoors for a month, basically. I had to, I, I had to do that. I had to like have this proper intimacy with the book, um, and I couldn't. I like I didn't really go out that much. I had to. I was the only thing I was doing when I was writing my book was my podcast every week. I didn't have a column at that point. Um, and even to be totally honest, I found the podcast a distraction. I would have been much better getting up every morning and just sitting on my own at my desk. And then occasionally I would like go out for a glass of wine with a friend, but I was so singular. I was, but I only had three months to write like half a book, so maybe that's why. I know other people who have full-time jobs who are writing a book can do it in a much more moderate way, because they have to, they don't have a choice, they have the luxury of sitting down for a whole day and writing it. So they do it kind of on their lunch hour or in the evening. But for me, the book writing process had to feel like writing a long narrative, it had to feel like I was really immersing myself in that world. That's really interesting, actually. Um, I feel like I had more of an abusive relationship with oh, really? my book. <laughs> like, my publisher's having to go, you need to write this now or else bad things will happen. <laughs> um, and so then did just spend whole days and nights not washing my hair, just writing. Yeah, I did that as well. Like, yeah. why do you have to be so grotty to write a book? I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's like dissertation mode. Yeah, totally. Just go back to that. Um, and what I really loved that you just said about conversations with friends, because that's a piece of advice I think I give it in the book as well as anywhere anyone will listen. But if you're ever struggling for something to say on social media that's going to connect, if you're at that stage in your journey where maybe you're like 
trying to write a blog post, trying to write an Instagram caption, something that's going to spark conversation and community, those are usually the best places to mine. It's like, what were we all so worked up at the pub last night? Like, yeah. what was the thing everyone was talking about? Or what are the topics that keep coming up in all of my different friendship groups? Because the chances are, if it's interesting to you and it's interesting to the people you love, it's going to be interesting to a wider audience and you can kind of trust that. It's amazing how many of us think you have to start from a clean slate and be like, well, I need to kind of come up with one of these worldly Instagram captions and actually a lot of the time the best thing is just what have you already been saying? So keep repurposing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we've got time for another question. So my question was a little bit about the thing you were talking about, about withdrawing. And I wanted to ask, how do you know the difference? Like, how are you navigating your desire to withdraw at the moment? And how do you know whether it's this patriarchal bullshit that's shouting you to get back in your box versus a genuine need to self-preserve? Yeah, such a, sorry, I've said such a good question to all three of those questions. <laughs> but I do a lot of live events, and it's normally women just being like, where did you get your shoes from? <laughs> so I'm, I'm very, very happy with the calibre of these questions. Um, if, I think you just have to just really be in tune with your heart and mind um, and I think it's 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 it, it change it's a it's a relationship in flux me and kind of exposing myself and using my own story and cannibalizing my own experience some of the time but basically I think that when you're when you're telling a story about yourself which you can connect the dots on and you're on the other side of, it doesn't re like, that's why I knew that I was okay to write the memoir. A lot of it was because I'd done a lot of therapy about the stuff that I'd written about. I don't mind people saying the drinking and the shagging has got to stop because I have talked at length with a professional about the drinking and the shagging <laughs> and I know why it happened and where I am with it now and what I feel about it all. Um, I think where you're more in danger is, again, this is something St. Catelyn Moran said. She said, you know, never break news about yourself. And that isn't about patriarchal shaming. That is about self-protection because there's a Margaret Atwood quote that I shamelessly borrowed from my book um, where she said, I'm paraphrasing very clumsily here, but she said, a story isn't a story until you're telling it, until you're on the other side of it. And, and up until then, you're, in, you're making your way through wreckage of broken glass and confusing, roaring noises. And I think that when you're in the wreckage, whether it's the beautiful, messy, wonderful wreckage of something joyful... Um, like a new relationship or a new baby or whatever it might be. Um, personally, uh, what I have learned is if you, as, as tempting as it is to try and make sense of it when you're in the middle of it, be that with writing or sharing on social media, I think to protect yourself, if you can give it just, a, just an inch more of time for it to have passed... Um, then you can see things with more clarity. And once you can see your own experience with clarity, true, clear eyes, you won't give a fuck what people have to say judging your experience or the stories you have to tell because you will know in your heart with all your integrity what that story meant and what the truth of it was. Where you start feeling wobbly and overexposed and the vulnerability hangover a lot is when you yourself aren't really sure what it is you've just talked about. So then when someone passes their judgment, you absorb it and you're like, oh, maybe they're right. I'm going to pass over to Sarah now. Uh, well... You've just said everything I would say, except more articulately. <laughs> um, so true. And I think people who listen to the podcast will have heard me say before that quite often I'll write something in the moment of crisis, but save it and yeah, not publish yeah. it. Because then you get all that rawness and all the real emotions coming through, but you don't have to put it out into the world until it feels safe for you. Um, this last week I did a piece for Stylist about how our relationship has changed since I became the breadwinner because previously it was him. I can't wait to read that because everyone's been sharing that piece saying <laughs> how brilliant it is. I've got it bookmarked. Oh, well, it ended up being a really long piece. They told me 800 words and it's like 1,500. I thought she was going to hack into it, but she went with the whole lot. So it's all out there. Um, and that wasn't, I wasn't really ready to share that, but it felt important. So I think there are times when you can take kind of a calculated risk. Yes. But yes. it was it was so hard to write knowing that it was going to be a risk. 
like I think when I feel that resistance in my writing and I don't know if you have the same thing it's because I know I'm putting it out before before the baby's finished developing before the cake's cooked yeah yeah um I think we should probably wrap it up actually sorry it's a very anticlimactic ending but Dolly and I are going to be um signing books at the back so if you've brought one with you or if you want to buy a copy tonight they're available to buy at the bar also if you've not had a glass of at Mirabeau Rosé wine yet um there's still some of that on the go and yeah thank you all so much for coming it really means the world to us both actually (laughs) Orla has just Orla has just handed me the mic and I would like to say that you are a true inspiration and a total superwoman and you disguise yourself by looking like a totally beautiful sort of Joan Byers hippy-dippy, <laughs> but underneath that is a totally sharp intellect and brain, and I am forever inspired by you. Thank you. I'm going to get that as my epitaph. <laughs> a huge thank you to Dolly for joining me that evening, and to everybody who could come along. I've put some show notes for the episode up at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 68, And you should also be able to see links and everything you need in your podcast app. Do check out Dolly's book, Everything I Know About Love. You will not regret it. It is one of the best things you will read in years. I know both Dolly and I would always love to hear your thoughts and keep this conversation going. So come and find us on Twitter or on Instagram. We've both confessed that we're there far too much. Um, Our handles are in the show notes. She's at Dolly Alderton and I'm me and Orla. I want to thank you so much for listening, for joining me for this first episode back. And I can't wait to see you next time.